Last week when I was preaching over Romans 12, we were talking about kind of the right motivation. I used an example of uh, fear-based motivation. Fear-based compliance is not always the best way. And I said, because what happens is you start, and then over time you kind of stop. And so I used an example of uh, being in a fraternity, and they had these rules at Baylor as I was pledging that you had to do. One was what you can't walk alone. And I told you last week, I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk alone. And so this week, I'd like to start by kind of finishing that story for you. So there I am at Baylor pledging a couple weeks into uh, pledging, and uh, there's these rules, one of which you cannot walk alone. And so I was like, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm a grown man. I can walk alone. And so I just start walking alone on campus. Well, the fraternity guys, uh, the ones who are already in the fraternity, they saw me walking alone. They saw me breaking a rule. And I think fraternity guys love for pledges to break rules, right? It's just like they're fully engaged in this moment. So they see me and they're like, there he is. He's alone. Get him. And so on the middle of Baylor campus, there's this all-out sprint chase that's happening. Now, I ran track in high school. I ran the 452 seconds. So they were not catching me, right? And so they're like huffing and puffing, and, and, and finally they yell out, you need to stop before we get kicked off campus. And the reason we get kicked off campus is because they were hazing me, which is illegal. And uh, they should have been kicked off campus. I don't know why, but I just froze, you know. I just I stopped. I let them kidnap me, and, or college nap me, or whatever it is. Anyways, they took me, and they threw me in the back of a trunk of a car. And they drove me to a graveyard. And they kind of took me out, did some spooky things with me, then threw me in another trunk of another car, and then drove me to this apartment. They led me upstairs and put me on my hands and knees, told me just to kind of bow down, look at the ground, cover my head, and just stay there in complete pitch darkness. And then they played this music, this circus theme over and over again. It's psychological torture. And um, they should have been kicked off. Anyway, so I'm sitting there in the room. I was real bold. I'm like, I'm going to walk by myself now. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? You know? And um, finally, I'm just like, I've had enough of this, right? Like no more. And so I kind of peek up and I see where I'm at. I'm like, I'm in some dude's bedroom. And I was like, and there's a TV. Maybe there's a ball game on. <laughs> so I grab the remote, I get on the couch, and I just start clicking through the channels, and I found a ball game. He has some potato chips in the room, so I opened those up and started eating those. So they come back in a few minutes later to check on me. I'm supposed to be on the floor going, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, and circus music playing. I'm watching a baseball game and eating his potato chips, and they lose their ever-loving mind, right? They're like, ah, but they actually love it. I know they do. And so they grab me. Back in the trunk I go, out to an abandoned airstrip in uh, Waco where I show up, and there's all my pledge brothers, and they do calisthenics until every single one of them pukes while I just sit there and watch, and then they just leave us to walk back to 9 a.m. Okim, all right? So the very next day after 9 a.m. Okim, I walk into the fraternity. I said, thanks. It's been really fun. I've really enjoyed this, but I'm done. I'm no longer submitting myself, subjecting myself, putting myself under your authority. It's over, right? Now, that's a story about the authority of fraternities, but what about when it comes to the, the authority of our city, of our state, and our national government? When there is someone who is put in office that you did not vote, you did not put there, when they have a policy or procedure or laws passed that you don't agree with, when they take an action that, that you cannot stand in, and it would be further from the thing that you would ever do, right? What do you and I as Christians do in those situations? Do we take a pickaxe and go to Hollywood Boulevard and smash up their star? 
Do we get on the internet and just go on a tirade on social media? Do we spread rumors and lies? Do we just fall in line and just go along? Are we just to be apathetic and oblivious, stick our head in the sand? What are you and I as Christians called to do? How are we to respond to the government? This is Paul's next topic in his letter to the church in Rome. Look in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. What Paul is doing here is he's writing this letter, the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome. He starts with the gospel. He says that because of our sin, we have been separated from God. But we can have a right, restored, renewed relationship with him through Christ. He starts in his book about the desperate need we have for God. And then he moves to a section. He says, theoretically speaking, this is what the Christian life should look like. And then in chapter 12, he uses the word, therefore, referencing Romans 1 through 11. He says, now, let's get practical. Practically speaking, what should the Christian life look like? And people have said, you know what? This seems like an odd to jump, right? That he's kind of talking about this practically, then he jumps over to government. But if you'll remember last week, we said, hey, the Christian life is supposed to have the right motivation, total commitment, renewed mind. And so we know, we understand that the way you and I relate to government, our actions and attitudes to the rules and the rulers of our land express and show our commitment to God. Are we totally committed? Do we have the right motivation? Do we have a renewed mind? That's seen in how we relate to our governing authorities. So it makes sense. So when we read this passage, I want you to understand, this is not a passage about church and state relationships. It's not a passage about the style or the type of government. It's not an exhaustive list that says everything it needs to say about government. This passage is about you. It's about you and your citizenship to the government. Paul's getting super practical here. In view of God's mercies, because you did not get what you deserve, how are you then to relate to the governing authorities? Last thing I want to say before we jump into it is sometimes I have a tendency, maybe you do as well, to kind of make light of or or tune out what the biblical authors have to say sometimes, because they don't get it. They don't, they're not living today, right? That was a thousand-something years ago. So I just want us to frame, before we tune this out or take light of what Paul's about to say, I need us to think about the government in his day, right? Paul in the Roman government. And what we see here is Christianity had only been around maybe 20-something years. So there's probably not one single Christian in the entire Roman government, maybe completely pagan, completely secular. And what we know is that the Roman government, they were easy on taxes for Roman citizens, but they were hard on taxes for people who weren't. And so maybe the Jews, the Christians, right, if they weren't Roman citizens, there was a heavy, heavy burdensome tax placed on them. We know that the the Claudius, the emperor of Rome, he actually banned the Jews five years, just kicked them out of Rome uh, because of their religion, the people group. Could you imagine today If the government just said, all right, all the Hindus, we need you to get out for five years, there would be riots, right? And that's what's happened here. The Jews have been kicked out for five years. They're back in at this point when Paul writes this letter. You imagine the persecution that these Christians have endured, not only by other citizens, but also by the hand of the government. When Paul writes this letter in 57, Nero is the emperor of Rome. Here's what we know about Nero. He took the throne when he was 16 years old. 
He had his mother stabbed to death in her villa. His first wife he exiled and then had her executed. His second wife, it says she died from him giving a single blow to her belly, right? He, when the fires broke out in Rome, what he did is he found the Christian group and he blamed them. He had Christians dressed in animal skins and ripped apart by dogs. He took Christians and he rolled them in wax and put them up in trees and burnt them to death so that they would have fire and light for their parties. It is Nero who ordered for Paul's head to be cut off. Paul was beheaded by an order of Nero. So before we get to thinking, he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand, he's not alive today, I think he gets it. I think when we understand that context and the government that he sits under when he writes these words, it brings a little more potency to the text. So practically speaking, how are you and I as Christians supposed to live and relate to our government? Let's see what Paul writes in Romans 13. He says, let every person, every soul be subject, be submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For she is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of consciousness. For because this, you also pay taxes for the authorities, they're ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay all to what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now we need to start by kind of clearing the air and addressing the elephant in the room, right? Is this to mean that every corrupt government, every leader who uses their authority for evil has been appointed by God. And so John Stott, great commentator, I think he does a wonderful little paragraph on making sure we have the right frame of mind as we enter into this text. Here's what John Stott writes. We should be cautious in our interpretations of Paul's statements. He cannot be taken to mean that all the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddams were personally appointed by God. That God is responsible for their behavior or their authorities in no circumstance to be resisted. Paul means rather that human authority is derived from God's authority. So we can say to rulers what Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power, no authority if it were not given to you from above. So no authority exists except from God. When I think about this, it's like me showing up at Rock Point seven years ago. I didn't just show up on campus and start bossing people around and making decisions and making changes. I was given that authority. It was delegated to me. I I did not have it. It was given, right? And so that's what he's saying here. Now, I'm responsible for what I do with that authority. It was never mine to begin with. It had to be delegated. The same is true with the government. 
So when Paul writes, let every person be subject to governing authorities, he realizes government's not perfect, right? Paul is acutely aware of this. Government's not perfect. Great example, right? The crucifixion of Jesus, where they falsely accused and wrongfully crucified the innocent son of God. Government messed up there. So when he's saying this, he understands that the governments aren't perfect, but flaws and imperfections do not negate our submission. So Paul's making sure we understand that. See, government is a biblical gift to mankind. It brings order to our society. God established the institution of government, and we work within that institution. We know that institutions and systems, those are never the root cause of the problem. It's the wickedness of the human heart that when inserted, even into the best systems and institutions, will corrupt them. So Paul is addressing this here. He's saying we need to be subject. We need to submit to the governed authorities. Now let's talk about submission for a little bit. Word carries a lot of baggage, right? You need to know what submission is not. So it does not mean this. When it says you are to submit to the governed authorities, it doesn't mean that you and I have less worth and less value than those in authority positions. Right? Everyone from president to prisoner has equal and infinite worth and value because we are created in the imago Dei, the image of God. So when it says be submissive, it's not about worth or value. When it says be submissive, it doesn't mean you agree on everything. You can disagree and still be submissive. You can disagree and still place yourself under the authority. Submission does not mean turning off your brain. It's not that, oh, we're not in authority, so we'll just turn it off and let them do all the thinking. That's not good. That's not submission, right? Submission means, no, they're in authority, but we are thinking. We are fully engaged with what is going on. Submission does not mean you stop trying to influence. Even though you're under authority, absolutely use all your intellect and your power and your means to influence those in authority over you. Just recognize that they are in authority over you. Submission does not mean we act out of fear that we should be worried about if we disagree or have a different opinion or we're fighting for something, right, that we're afraid of what's going to come. That's not true submission. And submission does not mean putting the will of those in authority before Christ. We always obey Christ. So when I try to figure out, okay, how does this submission look like and work in my own life, right? I think about Pastor Ron. Pastor Ron is my boss. He's my pastor. He is an elder of this church, okay? And so I am called, biblical mandate, to submit to his authority, okay? Now, if you know anything about Ron, his favorite restaurant in the entire world is the Flower Mound Presbyterian Hospital Cafeteria, okay? That's his favorite place to go. And I get it a little bit, right? There's nowhere else in the world that I know of where you can get a filet of salmon, steamed broccoli, and a soda for five bucks, right? They'll even throw in free risk of exposure to viruses, okay? They'll just throw that in. The whole package is there, okay? How could you go wrong? And so, right, when, when he and I, when I jump in his truck and we're heading to lunch, I am submissive to him, but that does not mean I agree with him. I absolutely don't agree with him. That's the last place I want to go eat, okay? And so what I try to do is I, I don't turn off my brain when I get in the truck. Like, if we leave from Rockport and we start heading north, I'm like, Ron, where are you going? We start kind of getting over to 2499, I'm like, Ron, what are you doing? If I see the hospital, I'm like, turn this truck around right now, you know? I don't stop trying to influence him to go to Anamia's instead of the hospital. I'm always trying to influence him to do that, right? I don't act out of fear. Like if I'm worried that I suggest, you know, Taco Ocho over the hospital, that he's going to fire me. 
You know, I'm still submissive. And I never put the will of Ron before the will of God. Now, I know if Jesus were alive today, he'd be at the hospital, but not for eating. He'd be doing something different. In my mind, Jesus is more like on the patio at Medea kind of guy, okay? So that's where I'm trying to be Christ-like and be there. So the same is true of government. We, we can disagree. We can have our different opinions. We can, we can think. We can influence, right? But we can still be submissive and under their authority. Paul calls on believers to submit to govern authorities, not to have unqualified obedience. Notice when he says, he says, children, obey your parents. He doesn't say citizens obey the government. He says citizens be subject to. There's an interesting distinction he's making here. His choice of words are important to our interpretation and application. To submit is simply to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. To acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority over us. So why? Why is he telling us to do this? When you think about his own government, when you're thinking about our government, he says submit, why? Here's three reasons. The first reason we are called to submit to governing authorities is that it is right. We've talked about this, that God has established the institution of government. We are to work within that. When when we resist that and we refuse that, we're resisting what God has established. Right? When, when When I steal... I, I don't steal, but if I were to steal, right, if, I came wrong, right, if I'm stealing, I'm resisting not just the government, I'm also resisting God's laws as well. He says, hey, if you resist, there can become punishment. There can be a judgment that comes. Be that through the governing authorities, be that through God. So it is right. The second reason we submit to authority of the state is that it is wise. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. So when you're living well, when you're doing the right thing, you have no fear. When you don't cheat on your income taxes, you're not worried about getting audited. When you're driving under the speed limit, you're not worried about getting pulled over. But the second we start to cross that line, we start looking over our back. We start getting worried, right? We start freaking out about, am I going to get caught? And that's kind of the purpose is what he's saying. The the government is a terror, is afraid of those who are doing bad. It's to bring order to society. And so I'll actually tell a story about when I was stealing it back in high school before I knew Christ and I needed to be redeemed. We were on the basketball team. We'd go and we'd stop at these stores and we'd get some drinks as we were traveling. And what a lot of the guys on the, the bus did, the team did, that I would also do is that they would grab a, a, a cup, a big Slurpee cup, and we'd go around and we'd get all the candy bars we want and we'd put them in the cup. And then we'd go to the Slurpee machine and fill it up and then put the lid on it. And then we'd go up to the cash register, and we'd be like, uh, just, just one Slurpee, ma'am, you know. When I, when I was paying for my candy bars, i walk around the, the, the gas station. I didn't care, right? But when I start stealing candy bars, I am freaking out. I'm looking at every camera. I'm worried that this clerk is going to pull, you know, arrest me or something like that, pull me over. And so that's what he's saying here. When we break the law, we start having fear. And that's what it's supposed to be for. He says they do not bear the sword in vain. The government is given the authority to punish wrongdoing up to and including death. That's why he's using the term the sword. He's referring to wars, referring to capital punishment here. He says they do not bear the sword in vain. So a simplified summary of this is that the government, it promotes and rewards the good and it restrains and punishes evil. Tommy Nelson, pastor of Denton Bible Church, I love the way he said it. He takes God's three institutions, the home, the church, and the government. And here's what he says. He says, the home is meant to educate and to teach little sinners. The church, their goal is to convert little sinners. 
And if neither of those work, the government will punish the little sinners. All right? Great summation of God's institutions and why he was given them. Now, if we're worried about punishment, then we, we may not obey. So Paul does something really cool here. He says, you ought to obey out of the sake of your Christian conscience. If we're only worried about punishment, if we're only worried about fear, then if I'm not going to get caught, I may do it anyways. Or maybe I would just always follow the rule no much because I could be, right? He says, no, 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 no. You ought to obey out of the sake of your Christian conscience. That means even when I'm not going to get caught, I'm going to submit to Christ and to submit to his rule and submit to his reign because I have a greater authority than the state. There are things in our nation and our country that are legal for us to do and to consume, but because we submit to a higher authority, we have a Christian conscience, we say no to those things. That's what he's talking about here, your Christian conscience. It's a radical principle. When we obey our government out of Christian conscience, it's radical for it cuts two ways. On one hand, we obey the state even when there's no civil consequences because our motivation to obedience is God who establishes the state. On the other hand, we can never submit uncritically to what the state tells us. If it requires us to violate our conscience, we must disobey. Third reason he gives us, the reason we should submit to governing authorities, is he says it's fair. For because of this, you pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And he says, you know, people who are in government, man, it's, it's hard work, and it's a high calling. Paul actually calls them ministers of God. The same way that you give tithes and offerings so the ministers here could do the work of the church is the reason we pay taxes so those ministers of God can do their job governing. Right? When you call 911, someone's going to pick up the phone. And if you got a need, they'll be at your house. That's part of what it goes to, right? It's a high calling. It says this is fair to do. So a summary is someone wrote this. Christians recognize the state's authority and ministry come from God. They'll do more than tolerate it as if it were a necessary evil. Conscientious Christian citizens submit to the government's authority, honor its representatives, pay its taxes, and pray for its welfare. They will also encourage and influence the state to fulfill its God-appointed role insofar as they have the opportunity to actively participate in its work. Now again, I want to go back to what about corrupt law, corrupt officials, corrupt government? What again are we to do in that? Paul gives us a hint in verse 7. He says this, Owe all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We are called to respect the position, even when it's hard to respect the person, right? So when Paul's talking here and writing here, he's talking about paying our taxes to him, taxes to vote, he's referencing Jesus. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. And there, in those days, Caesar was supposed to be kind of a representative of God in the, in the country, in the community. Caesar was supposed to receive worship. And so Jesus comes in, he kind of undermines and undercuts his presumed authority. He says, here's what you give to Caesar. You give him money and you give him respect. But to God, you give him unqualified obedience. And you give him worship alone. That's what he's doing here. And so we are to submit right up to the point that our submission and obedience to the state would entail a disobedience to God. 
If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, civil disobedience is our Christian duty. We get to say, no, 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 no. We must obey God rather than men. So when Pharaoh makes an edict that every Hebrew boy born is to be taken, is to be thrown and drowned into the Nile River, the Hebrew midwives, it is their duty to respectfully engage in civil disobedience, right? When King Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden statue and says, when you hear the music, everybody bows and worships. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's duty to respectfully engage in civil disobedience. When King Darius says, you will pray only to me. And at the threat of death, if you pray to anyone else, you're going to the lions. They will have you for their supper. It is Daniel's duty to respectfully engage in civil disobedience. But what I love about it, right, every single one of them, they disobeyed the state. And then they submitted to the punishment out of fearless respect, right? Nothing to fear. God is in control respecting the officials all the way up to the point even of death for them. Tim Keller, he kind of sums this up and he says, our response to government should be this, full participation with calm, qualified respect. We respect the position even when it's hard to respect the person. It's qualified. It's not, you know, we just obey no matter what they say, right? There's a Christian consciousness that goes with it. And he says calm because we don't have to freak out about any policy or president, right? Because we know ultimately God is in control and God is governing. He's the ultimate authority and we know that he's got this. He's sovereign over all so we can walk out of here with a calmness. And he says full participation. Because what Paul is calling us to do is not attack politics or attack culture. He's not asking us just to pretend like we're above it or avoid it altogether. He says, get into it, be full participants, and transform it from the inside out. That's the desire. There was a tweet this week I saw, I loved it. It says, we should be on guard against talking about the president more than Paul talked about Nero. Especially if we're talking about Jesus less than Paul talked about Jesus. Paul had every opportunity just to rail on Nero. And he didn't. He says, submit to the authority because ultimately it's God's authority, right? And so we think about Joseph. We think about Jesus and how they honor non-Christian governments. So there has been and still is a misnomer across parts of the globe that Christians actually make for terrible, terrible citizens. The logic follows that because you and I as Christians, we have a higher authority than that of the state, a higher authority than that of the government, then we might subvert the laws and, and destroy society and kind of ruin it, right? And, and so Christians should therefore be removed and muzzled because they have a higher authority than the state. But this thought couldn't be further from the truth. Paul is saying not just this section, but all of Romans, right? We're not only just participating in the state, but in our neighborhoods and our communities. Everywhere we go, we're to overcome evil with good. We're to bring doers of good everywhere we go. So no, we're not supposed to be the worst citizens because we serve Christ, because we submit to the ultimate authority of God. We're to be the best citizens, the best neighbors, the best community members, the best customers and employers and business managers. We're to be the best friends and throw the best parties, right? Because no matter who sits in office or what policy come down the pipeline, we know that God is in control. We can be exemplary citizens. We can be excellent neighbors. 
We can serve and submit to governing authorities with that calm, qualified respect. Because we're not just citizens of the state, we're citizens of heaven. And we have a hope that goes beyond humanity, and a Savior that's bigger than sin, and a God who is greater than all government. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and for giving us the institution of government. I know that can seem weird and uncomfortable at times, Lord, but we will respect it because it's from you. And we respect you. We love you. We know that you have our good in mind. Our best is what you desire. And so, God, help us to think deeply about these passages, about how they speak to us and our citizenship. And God, may we walk out of here and live an incredible, practically Christian life, Lord, that we do the things. We're not the worst citizens. We're the best. We're a shining example in our communities, in our neighborhoods, amongst our friends of what the hope of the cross brings to sinners' lives. God, we want to pray for the government officials, Lord. We want to pray for the police and pray for the military. Lord, it's a high calling. It's a, it's a noble. They're doing their job that you've called and set aside for them, Lord. So help us to love you, to serve you as best we can. It's your name we pray. Amen. At this point in time, we're going to take communion. It's just a remembrance of who our ultimate authority is, who's in control of it all. The, the hope that we have, our hope is not in government, it's in God. Because Jesus on the cross, right, he paid the price for you and I so that we could be reconciled, so that we might have eternity with God in Christ. And so we remember that as we take the bread, as we take the cup, we're looking for the hope that is in Jesus. So at this moment, let's receive the elements.